Okay, so how many of you guys have ever uh, had chili? Chili? Yeah. How, about, how many of y'all have uh, watched it being prepared? Okay, so, so let me invite you into a journey. This is a theological journey, trust me. So there you are, you're, 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 in, you're in the home, whichever house or home you are, and there on the stovetop is this, this you know that pot that you don't use too often because it's so big, that, that, that kind of big steel pot, right? It's got all the scuff. Like you haven't bought a new one of these in 47 years. It's sitting, right? It's there. It's on the stove. And, and over the course of the day, you know, there's these ingredients that have been added to the chili. So there's like a tomato base. Uh, there's some meat, you know, maybe some beef, some turkey if you're trying to stay fancy. And there's like beans if you're one of those types of people. There's onions. There's jalapenos. There's all these different ingredients. And then inevitably, in any good chili, what else is there? Spice. There's all sorts of spice. And uh, as you're smelling the chili being prepared, right, as it's, it's doing that little bloop, 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 bloop. You guys know, you guys with me so far? You guys with me? Am I, am I telling a lie? No, this is the truth. You go, inevitably, you walk in, you, you smell the chili, and, and, and hopefully, if, if you're a generous uh, person or you're at a generous home, there's a little wooden spoon, Right? That, that you got, that this, whoever it is that's propelling chili got from their great grandparents. Okay, so there's that wooden spoon, and it's maybe in one of those dishes, or maybe it's just sitting on the countertop. And, and what people will inevitably do, right? I'm not talking about hygiene, you just come with me. What people will inevitably do is they'll walk up, they'll take the spoon, they'll do a little bit of this, maybe they'll do a little bit of this, and then what do they do? It's boiling, right? It's bloop, 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 and they'll take a little, right? And then over the pot. They, they, you know, they'll, they'll like act like they're hygienic with the hand and the shared community spoon, and they'll, 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 and then most people will use their teeth, and they'll bite, right? They'll bite on the wood spoon, and they will bring into all of their senses the flavor, the smell, the temperature, all that that chili is, is they're experiencing it. But now, let's say that this chili is being prepared for dinner. So let me ask you a deep theological question. When you do that, when you stand over the, 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 the stove and you, and you and then you breathe it and you taste it and you smell it, are you eating dinner? Are you sure? You see, dinner is more than that, but it's not less than that. In fact, the dinner that's coming here in a couple hours, all of that will be there, but in its fullness. What you're having, watch me now, what you're having, you are having a taste of dinner, but the dinner that is to come. You are experiencing in this little way some of the flavor, some of the beauty of what is to come you're experiencing now, but it's not in its fullness, is it? It's called a foretaste. You're having a foretaste of dinner. It's, it is dinner. But it's not dinner in its fullness. It's a piece of dinner that you get to experience right now. Now, some of us are asking, why are we talking about chili? Some of us are also asking, when will this be over? I'm hungry. <laughs> Great questions. I'm going to try to answer the first one. We are in a series called Manifold Wisdom. And it's riffing on this theme that we find in Ephesians chapter 3 and 4. And it's this theme that runs throughout your whole Bible. It really starts to explode in the New Testament. And that is this theme. This is running theme throughout Scripture. Follow me now. That, that 
the end story of your Bible is not that everyone dies and goes to heaven and then the earth is just destroyed and that's it. The end story of your Bible, go look it up today, Revelation 20, uh, 19 through 21. The end game, so to speak, is heaven reuniting with earth just like it was back in Eden. So in, in the beginning of your Bible, it's God dwelling with humans on the earth. Heaven and earth are combined. The end of your Bible is the same thing. It's just this middle part that's all messed up, right? Because God's not dwelling with us in the fullness right now. But one day, God will dwell with humanity once again on the earth. And we will be, uh, we will be reunited as humanity with our God. That's the end story. So here's the deal. When we talk about heaven, another way to say it is like uh, the eternal state. What's it going to be like for eternity? Well, it's going to be heaven and earth reunited, a lot similar to what it was like in Eden, only with just a lot more people and maybe some buildings. Great. That's just, that's, love to talk to you more about that. By the way, real quick, uh, we do, uh, so uh, I want to invite y'all uh, to, if, if you're part of Desert Springs or maybe you're just hanging out visiting today, either way, uh, I'd love to invite you to stay after this service at the 11 o'clock hour. Uh, we've got a bunch of different groups that are meeting all around campus, and it's, it, it's an opportunity for us to connect with one another, kind of around tables or smaller group settings or just smaller settings. It's also a way to kind of flesh out how we connect uh, our faith uh, to real life. And so uh, we've got different uh, groups. In fact, if you've signed up for Rooted or if you want to sign up for Rooted, those are some Rooted groups or kicking off here. Uh, there's actually a kickoff today at 11 o'clock. I'm going to be hosting a sermon question and response. So I'll kind of be here and maybe there'll just be a handful of us. So here's the deal. If you want to come to the sermon and response, I'd love to have you uh, join me. You can text in questions uh, throughout the sermon and in your handout, I think it's like right in the middle uh, where there's like a notes page, there's a phone number. So if you have questions about anything we bring up today, you text that in and I will respond to it at the question and response time uh, after the sermon. That'll be in here at 11. So we'll dismiss um, and then you'll have uh, some time to go out, grab a coffee and a donut and then meet back in here at 11 or hang out in one of the other amazing groups that we've got around campus, which you can find out more in your handout. Uh, those are great opportunities to flesh out some of the stuff that we're talking about today. But that whole story of the Bible that we started in union with God and we end in union with God, the, the, the reason that we're talking about Chile is that the church is, come with me now, the church is designed to be the wood spoon sample. It's a church, not, we don't always do it right. But the church is called to, the church is designed to be a foretaste of heaven, not heaven in its fullness. So some of y'all are looking around the room and be like, that person sinned against me this morning. Yep. It ain't the meal fully, but if we will approach one another in good faith, seeking to practice the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, centered in Jesus, we might find ourselves on occasion having a little taste of heaven. Now, in this, in especially in Ephesians, one of the ways that this foretaste idea, this foretaste of heaven is seen is in the diversity of the local church. Uh, the, 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 um, the, the prayer that we pray, uh, oh, have you guys ever heard this? Um, uh, Our Father, uh, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Uh, what's that? Um, what is it? Thy kingdom come, and then um, the way we do, where on the, as it, to pray that prayer is to say, Lord, let me be a foretaste on earth as it is in 
heaven. You all got me? Okay, so, so how is it? So here's the question. How is heaven? And by the way, by heaven, I mean heaven and earth reunited. Well, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that every tribe, nation, and tongue will bow before the throne of God in the eternal state. Every uh, ethnicity, every nation will bow before God in the eternal state. So if we're going to be a foretaste, should we all just pick and choose to be with people who are just like us? Or should we strive to be a Jesus-centered community in which everyone's welcome, regardless of their background, regardless of their political views, regardless of their economic status, regardless of their immigration status? And here's the the answer. Come with me now. What does heaven look like? Homogenous or diverse? So the local church, in as much as is possible, I get it. Like we can't, any local church can't look like the whole world. I totally get that. But in as much as possible, whatever the diversity in the community, I believe that the, the, the principle here is that the local church should, to the best of its ability, organically, and not force, but organically, reflect the community. If the, if the local church doesn't look like its community, there might be something out of sync. Okay? Is that Okay. I'm not trying to throw shade. I'm just trying to get you. Like, I think this is all in Ephesians 3 and 4. In fact, I think the Apostle Paul is making this argument throughout his entire career. So here's the beautiful part. I want you to imagine with me. Ready? Let's go back. Let's, let's close our eyes. And we'll be time-traveling tourists. Ready? We're going to go back in time. <laughs> Ready? We're back in time. We're back 2,000 years ago. And what we see before us is a small gathering, maybe 15 or 20 people, gathered around the table at what they call the Lord's Supper. And this is a group of people that they just don't look the same. This group of 20 people around this table, there's, there's bread and there's wine, there's meat and there's vegetables and fruit at this table, but what's, so, which isn't really bizarre. But what's bizarre is who's at the table. So here we are in this Greco-Roman empire where You want to make sure that you're at tables with people who can help you get ahead in life. But at this table, they're slaves. At this table, they're free. At this table, there's wealthy. At this table, there's poor. At this table, there's Jews. At this table, there's Greeks. There's even those barbarians and Scythians that your grandma warned you about. They're there too. And on this beautiful scene, we see that... Perhaps the young slave girl stands up and gives a word of teaching. Perhaps the, the elderly Jewish man stands up and gives a psalm. Uh, perhaps the wealthy host uh, blesses the meal. And as they take this Lord's table in, they are modeling the manifold or multifaceted wisdom of God. Because you look at this table and you're asking what question? How is it that these people are together? All right, come back to me now. When misfits are bound together, not by their common affinities, but by the love and grace of God made known to us through Jesus Christ, the onlooking world peeks in and says, what is, how can you guys sit together and not like kill each other? Do you think that this is a hope-giving message that the world needs to hear today? Okay. That we can sit at tables with people who are different than us? Okay, so here's this beautiful scene. 
And they take communion. And then you know what happens inevitably? They start talking. And uh, the Scythian says to the elderly Jewish man, he says, uh, hey, what do you think about Caesar's new policy to cancel student debt? And the impoverished young man says, I think it's a great idea. And the wealthy homeowner says, I think it's Marxism. And then the historian says, that hasn't been invented yet. <laughs> and, and, and even as I'm telling jokes, can you not feel the tension around this table build? Right? I mean, I'm literally making a joke about it, about an ahistorical, anachronistic concept, and we're already feeling like, Caleb, stop talking. Okay, now, come with me. This is why, that tension we feel, is why the majority of your New Testament had to be written. Because what we have now is not the fullness, but the foretaste. Which means Jesus ain't done working on us yet. And if Jesus ain't done working on me yet, and Jesus ain't done working on you yet, there, there might could be a space between us where we might find tension, friction, disappointment, confusion, sadness, anger, even rage. Because you're distant from me, and I like me. I think me is pretty smart. I think me has got it all figured out. I think me is a well-rounded, reasonable person. And when you're different than me, dumb, <laughs> ignorant, crazy, now, right? Now, is that a righteous response to the distance between us? No. So I want to invite you in. I want to invite you in to have a foretaste of the kingdom of God. But here's the caution. In order to experience the beauty of the foretaste, you got to recognize sometimes we're going to get our tongues burned. We're going to have to recognize that sometimes we're going to burn our finger on the stove. We're going to have to recognize that Jesus ain't working, he ain't done working on me yet, and he ain't done working on y'all yet. And here's the thing. I'm convinced of this. In order to experience that foretaste beauty, we can approach the distance between us, not with suspicion, but with curiosity, both tethered to Jesus, seeking to love the other, and never make excuses for not loving the other. And when we, when we do the tension, when we do the confusion, when we, when we slight each other, when we offend one another, here's the opportunity. One, it's an opportunity to run away. I don't like you. I don't like how I feel inside. I'm out. Here's another option. To do the hard work of confession, repentance, reconciliation, and maybe even restoration. And in a restored community, where we've offended one another and slighted each other, but because of Jesus, we come back to the table, we might see the manifold wisdom of God on display even more. Uh, do you guys like science experiments? Do you guys not like science? Who, who doesn't like science experiments? Okay, well, you're going to have one. Okay, so watch this. Manifold. I want to illustrate for you the manifold wisdom of God. Now, this, ladies and gentlemen, is a prism. Ooh, ah, okay, you guys are great. Okay, so it looks like a unified whole. It's, it's just a cube. It looks like a cube of glass. It just looks like it's one unified 
uh, whole, W-H-O-L-E, one unified whole. But here's what's interesting. If you look closely, you can see that there are many facets. It's multifaceted. It's cut on the inside with multiple facets. If you've ever seen a diamond, it's all those little cuts are there to tease out the beauty of the diamond. This, uh, uh, um, a prism is very similar. Now, here's what happened. You guys see this prism? Okay, this prism, the, what's happening is the light isn't quite shining through it. Right? I mean, even with these lights, the light's not really shining through the prism. So you can't, you're not really getting all of the, the power and the beauty of the light as it shines through the prism. So let's get just a more powerful light here, see what happens. Now, watch what happens when the manifold, when the manifold wisdom is put on display. Tell me what colors you guys see all the colors. Now, here's the deal. It's the diversity of the prism that puts on display the glory of the light. It's the diversity of the prism that puts on the manifold dis wisdom, the manifold wisdom of the light is put on display by the multifaceted nature of the prism. To put it another way, the manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church. So if we let the light shine through, we've got to recognize that the light shining through a diverse local church is like the light shining through that prism. It's going to put on display more of the wisdom and beauty of God than, if, than just if we were just one cut. You guys got me there? So there's a beauty in it. But our temptation is to fall into competition. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to work through Ephesians 3 and 4, portions of it, uh, and invite you to recognize the beauty, but also recognize the pain. And then what we're going to do collectively as a church family is we're going to step into, oh, by the way, do you guys know there's an election on? And this one's the midterms, so we're doing gubernatorial stuff and then uh, some other smaller ones. Like, and the tension's already building, like I'm already hearing from many in our church family, like, yeah, we, can't we can no longer invite that person over for dinner in our family, because all, all, all the heat, all the tension, all this, yeah. is this happening to anybody? Yeah, you don't have to raise your hand, right? So, someone right now just got nudged. Actually, that was the sound of someone right there getting nudged. Now, I, it's, I get it, man. It's me too. It's my life too. So I want to invite you in to a better way. I want to invite you in to the Jesus way. I want to invite you to the way that gives people a foretaste of heaven. So this is the Apostle Paul writing to a diverse local congregation who's wrestling with the same things we, we wrestle with. And I, I've intentionally left this in. So in your handouts, I've transliterated just a few, a few words. But if you'll notice uh, this word, excuse me. If you'll notice this word here, uh, it's, it's ethnos or ethnocene. It's this idea of the ethnos or the people group. Or when we use the word nation, too often we think of nation state. But the word nation in your Bible, the word ethnos or ethnos in your Bible, sometimes it gets translated as Gentile. It just means uh, the ethnic outsider or the ethnic other. So whatever you are, it's the ethnic other. Okay? So it's all the ethnic others. So uh, the grace was given to preach to all the ethnic others the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, track it with me, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the, notice the language, what is it? The manifold wisdom of God might be made known through what? 
the prism of the church, the manifold wisdom of God, that light hits the prism, the diverse local church hits the prism of the church and it puts on display the manifold wisdom of God to whom? The rulers and authorities where? Paul has this uh, very spiritual cosmology where he recognized that there are evil powers at work. And he says that the diverse local church living in harmony shouts, shouts the wisdom of God at the powers of evil in this world. Now here's what I want you to notice. That the administration of the mystery, does that, that sounds weird, that's like weird language. I just, here's what it is. It's the administration. It's the actual working out of the mystery of God. According to Paul, what's the mystery of God? That the gospel is not just for the Jewish people, but who's it for? All people. And how do you know that that's being administered? You look at the local church. Got it? So how do you know that it's for all people? You look at that 20 people around the table. Okay, let's keep going. So, uh... For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom, notice this, every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being, here's where we get that language of rooted, like the study group that's coming up here, that you would be rooted and grounded in what? So he wants, he wants Christ to dwell in our hearts. He wants us to be rooted and grounded in what? Why do you think he's taking the time to say all this? Come on. Because it's so tempting, isn't it, to disentangle ourselves from being rooted in the love of Christ and start to attack the other. So he says, listen, you guys, diverse local community, putting on the manifold wisdom of God on display, you've got to be rooted and grounded in what? Love. Okay, so let's pause. Let's pause. I know I'm going fast, but let's pause. Do you know that the presence of Christ is here with us now? That Christ is present right now. He even does this thing. He says, hey, when, when like even two or three of you are gathered I am in your midst. I'm in your midst. So in a diverse local community, church family, what might it mean for us when we have those feelings of tension, anxiety, frustration, even rage, even anger, what, what might it mean for us to just notice, wait, Christ is present with me right now. To put it another way, what would it mean to consistently attend to the presence of Christ day by day and moment by moment? When you and I want to have a little, you know, a little argument, a little fight, a little disagree, when you and I are in that space, we're bound together by Christ, and our hearts are bound up, rooted and grounded in love, what might it look like for us to step into, before we step into our argument, to root and ground our hearts in the love of Christ. Can I invite you into, into that life? That before you, you know, fire off that email or that really well-crafted argument on social media, I mean, you're doing it great, right? Totally going to convince people. Before you fire that off, right, before that text message, before that phone call, before that sit-down, before that reactive response, what if... 
we took a moment to simply attend to the presence of Christ in our midst and root ourselves in his love. Here's one way that I have uh, been trying to do this. When I'm feeling all those feelings about the distance between you and me, I remind myself, Caleb, Jesus loves you more than you could ever imagine. Your dignity, worth, and value are not tied up in getting this person to agree with you. The fact that they see things different than you, Caleb, is not an indictment on you. I could never be more loved than I am right now in Jesus. You know what that tends to do to my ragey self? Not all the time. But it just tends to, oh, that's okay, take a minute. Usually I find that when I'm reacting in those ways, when I'm feeling all of that, ah, in the distance between us, it has more to do with what's going on in here than it has to do with what's going on here. So I want to invite you to root and ground yourself in the love of Christ, recognizing that his power and his spirit can change us, that he is full of love for you. And so let me pause and just ask you to open your hearts to this truth. Especially in this age of outrage, would you receive this? Jesus loves you more than you could ever imagine. He has given his life for you. He loves you so much. He knows you by name. He knows your fears. He knows your sorrows. He feels your grief. And he knows when you're afraid. And he's seen you at your worst. And he calls you his own nonetheless. By the way, that's why we sing amazing grace. And if we follow this invitation to enter into a ragey world, an anxiety-ridden world, rooted in love, rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, might we be a people then who out of that rootedness express the fruit, watch it, the fruit of the Spirit, that even though there's anxiety and rage here, what's coming out of here is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Rooted in love. I want to invite you to root yourself in the love of Christ. He loves you so much. Paul goes on. Putting away lying, speaking the truth, how? Each one to his neighbor, because, notice this, we are what? Members of one another. John Donne, the old, old school British poet, said, ask not for whom the bell tolls. If any man dies, a part of me dies with him because I am a part of all of humanity. If any man dies, I am the less. Therefore, ask not for whom the bell tolls, the bell tolls for thee. What John Donne is saying is what we see here, that we are members to one another. And so we speak to one another in kindness and love. Here's a good one. Be angry. How many like that command? 
Come on. Where's my Irish scotch family? Where are we at? Okay. Yep, me too. Yep, thank you. All right. Be angry. To, to want injustice to be made just, it's righteous anger. But in, be angry and don't what? Mm. Not a fan. <laughs> don't let the sun go down on your anger. I don't think that that means, hey, you've got a time limit on this. I think it's more of a, a, para, uh, it's more of a, a a proverbial statement, don't nurture the anger. Here's why. You nurture that anger for too long, what happens? It becomes rage. It can manifest itself now as hatred. So be angry, yes, but don't sin. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is what? What if every word that came out of my mouth was only for the good in building someone else up? I'd be quiet a lot more (laughs) than I seem to tend to be. The type of speech is speech that gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. For you are sealed with him for the day of redemption. Let all, here we go, kids, let all bitterness anger, wrath, shouting, social media, slander, social media, be removed from you, along with what? All malice. Instead, rooted and grounded in love, be what? Forgiving one another just as whom? Just as what? What does that mean? It means I'm anchored and rooted in the love of Christ for me, And I'm going to, out of that, seek to live in this world. And out of that, I'm going to put away all that rage and malice, anger, fear, and anxiety. And instead, I'm going to choose to strive to walk the Jesus way by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay. A couple hundred people in the room right now. What kind of a difference do you think it would make in North Phoenix if during this next election cycle, there was a couple hundred people who just, in the midst of outrage and anxiety, walked love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Might that put on display, especially as a bunch of misfits, the manifold wisdom of God? Can I ask you a, a pointed question? <laughs> that was like a rhetorical thing. It's not actually, I'm not actually asking your permission. Come with me now. Come on. How would it put on the manifold wisdom of God? How, how would the manifold wisdom of God be put on display if five Democrats from this church sat at a table with five Republicans and with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control had an honest, good-faith conversation about all the things that are going on in here, the things we care about? Where we're approaching each other out of curiosity and not suspicion, we're dignifying the image of God in the other, and we're not seeing to, seeking to make ourselves feel better by destroying the other person's image in our own mind. What, what kind of impact do you think that would have? So one of the reasons why we are restructuring our entire model as a church, uh, with, especially with our 11 o'clock slot, is to, to have more and more and more opportunities for us to be at tables with people who are different than we are. We want that more and more and more. I totally get, like, I I love uh, the sermon. I love what we do in our large gatherings. But listen, this is monologue, right? 
Dialogue is where the, not only the beauty, but also the, ooh, that's a spicy, (laughs) right? Like, ooh, that's a little too much for me. That all happens at the table. So let me just give you a couple of things, and then we're going to transition to communion. I want to caution us, just pastorally, I want to give us just some coaching. I want to caution us against using war, war language when it comes to dealing or engaging with people who are different than us. Here, here's what I mean. I continue to hear language like this. We are fighting a culture war. Okay, I, okay. great. I, I wonder if that's a Jesus thing. I don't think it is. But when I fight a war, what do I want to have happen to my enemies? I want them to be utterly destroyed. Is that what I want as a Jesus follower? Do I want the person who sits down the pew from me to be destroyed because we have a difference of opinion on some sort of cultural value or expression of it? We're using violent, I've I've noticed this especially in my pastoral tenure, the amount of violent language referring simply to people who are different than us is very high, and, and I get that that happens out, you know, in, all over the world. It's in the church, too. And so I want to caution us. Just, just do an audit of your speech. It's okay to say, hey, we have a difference of opinion, or the person who's arguing the other way, and we're going to argue together. Okay, great, right? We want to notice those things. Hey, we're, we're different from each other. You have a, I disagree. I think you're wrong. But my thinking of you as wrong is not the same as me wanting to destroy you. So watch the war language, the violent language. Here's a, here's a practice that I'm, I'm seeing happening. Oh, by the way, have you guys ever heard the um, uh, love your neighbor is your, what's the thing? Love your, to, it's the, um, what, what is it? Yeah, yeah, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, you guys have heard this one before? Classic. Okay. Okay, so if you're going to love other people the way you want them to love you, do you want people, when they hear about one of your perspectives, They don't hear it from you. They just hear that people like you are this category of persons. Uh, Like in in our example, um, if I can just be uh, quite uh, contemporary, uh, like a Nazi or a communist. And, And people who believe what you believe are actually all communists or actually all Nazis. Do you like it when people lump you into a category that you won't take on for yourself? Would you like it when people identify you with an identity that you would not happily take on yourself? Do you like that? Do you feel loved when that happens? Okay. Yeah, you guys are like, oh, Campbell. I see where this is going. Okay. Sometimes the distance between us makes us have certain feelings like anger, rage, fear, those types of things. And in order to make it go away, what we have a tendency to do is label in order to devalue, in order to dismiss. Watch me now. We label in order to devalue, in order to dismiss. I don't want to deal with you as a person with nuance and complexity and pain and and all this stuff. So I don't like what you stand for, so I'm going to label what you stand for in a derisive or devaluing way so I can just dismiss you out of hand. Can Can I give you, this is spicy, spicy, here we go. We won't invite Uncle Jim over anymore because he's a Nazi. We won't invite Aunt Sally over anymore because she's just a communist. 
We won't invite them anymore because they're just a conservative racist. We won't invite them over anymore because they're just part of the woke mob. Labeling in order to devalue, in order to do what? I don't want to deal with you. I don't. Notice in the labeling, are we honoring the dignity, worth, and value, the image of godness in the other person when we label in order to devalue, in order to dismiss? Do you feel loved when people do it to you? So let us love our neighbor as ourselves. Allow the nuance. Allow that Jesus is stronger than the confusion, kids. He's stronger than the complexity. He's stronger than all the unknowns. Jesus is king over the entire cosmos. He holds the world together by the word of his power. He loves you more than you can ever imagine. You don't have to crush them. And he can give us strength to engage them in love. One of the best ways that we can practice this Okay. Um, too often, we learn about people who are not like us from people who are just like us. Too often, we learn about people who are not like us from people who are just like us. And usually, I wouldn't say usually, there is a tendency for the people who are just like us to paint the people who are not like us in a bad light in order for us to give our hearts and allegiance and money to them. Do you feel loved when other people learn about you from people who are nothing like you and have no idea about your experience? So, so next time, so, 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 so Jesus followers, I want to invite you into this. Next time you hear somebody saying, you know, those people, this is what they believe, go and ask one of those people. And if you say, I don't know any of those people, may not be a good opportunity, may be a good opportunity to pause on your opinions on them if you don't know them. And I want to invite you in here at Desert Springs. I almost guarantee I know one of them. And so we get to sit at tables with people who are not like us. And we get to learn. It doesn't mean that we agree. doesn't mean that we conform to their ideas. But if we're going to strive to understand and love our neighbors ourselves, we want to make sure that we learn about people who are different than us from them. Hmm? Finally, here's one practical question. In the space between you and me, the difference, the disagreement that we have, can I articulate your perspective in a way that you wholeheartedly agree with? If I cannot, I don't think I fully understand yet, and I need to keep the door open for conversation. If, in the space between us, your perspective, my perspective, if I can't articulate your perspective in a way that you would wholeheartedly agree with, I don't think I fully understood and so it's an invitation to further conversation. Now, for many of us, we're hearing these things and we're like, you know, I like the first half of the sermon. <laughs> the prism was really cool. But, you know, that, that jerk calls himself a pastor. He's all over, he's stepping all over my toes. How on earth, like Caleb, don't you know the real world? Caleb, don't you know how the real world works? Jesus loves you more than you can ever imagine. And you know what really happened in the real world? God became flesh. He lived among us. He allowed his own creation to betray him and to crucify him in the real world. 
And in the real world, they put him in a real tomb. You know what else happened in the real world? Three days later, Christ rose from the grave, conquering over Satan, sin, and death, promising one day to return and restore all that which is broken to wholeness again and reunite heaven and earth. And in the meantime, in the real world, we live as foretastes of the coming kingdom in its fullness. We live on earth as it is in heaven now in order to be, follow me, in order to put on display for this dead and dying community the manifold wisdom of God. That they might look in and say, something's going on there. I need the life source that they've got. In the real world, Jesus has called us to live this way, practicing by the power of his spirit, rooted in his love, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control.